A couple of years ago, after we had raised our children and we found we were we raised them in a house that was just a little bit bigger than the house in which that Stephanie described last week, we decided it was time to move. Now, I imagine that most of you have experienced moving. It is a pain. There are so many things you have to do. You have to fix all of the things that you let go as long as you lived in your house. You have to repaint. You have to do that real thorough cleaning that you had been putting off as well. You have to find a new place. You hire a realtor. You pack. You have to hire movers. You unpack. It's just months and months of stress and disorganization. You know, even for us to this day, we're continuing to do little things. We're doing a little bit more painting here, and we're doing a little bit of redecorating there, and even replacing some of the furniture that was broken by the movers. Well, in a lot of ways, in our passage, we see that the nation of Israel experienced moving pains as well. Up to this point, they had failed to fully take possession of the land that had been promised way back to Abraham, to Moses, and to Joshua. They barely moved from being this loose confederation of tribal groups to an established nation under a monarchy. And even that, as we saw in uh, 2 Samuel 2, 3, and 4 so far, was kind of up for challenge. But last week, we saw that Yahweh changed this because he made a profound promise to his chosen king, to this man after his own heart, to David. No, Yahweh promised to make good on the promises that he had made to Abraham, Moses, and uh, Joshua through David. You know, David was promised in this Davidic covenant that Yahweh would make his name great, that he would provide the nation with the land, that he would give them rest from their enemies. That was a big deal. That he would establish a dynasty through David, that he would provide him with offspring, and even promise this eternal kingdom. Then we saw that David responded with this beautiful prayer of thanksgiving. Well, this week we're going to take a look a little bit further to see how David responded when he heard Yahweh's promises. Let's look at 2 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 14. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagama out of the hand of the Philistines. Mithigama has been translated in several different ways because they really aren't quite sure exactly what was meant by this, uh, the phrase in the Hebrew, and whether it was an actual place or maybe it was a region or what exactly it was. But if we look at the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, you'll see the use Gath and its villages. So that would have been the main cities of Philistia. And he defeated Moab and he measured them in a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. This bringing of tribute and this becoming of servants speaks of a complete subjugation of the people. It was probably uh, that the bringing of tribute was an ongoing process. They would have needed to continue to bring tribute to David every single year. Now, this would ensure the subjugation of the people and by keeping them poor. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. 
And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betta to Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. Now again, if we look at the, first, uh, at the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, you'll see that this bronze was used to create what was basically a big bathtub that sat in the courtyard of Solomon's temple. Um, it would have been used by the uh, priests to bathe, to do ceremonial washing. Um, it, this bronze was also used for pillars and for other vessels to make the temple. And when Toy, the king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy took his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to Yahweh, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the uh, king of Zobah. Now here, if you use, again, the numbers in 1 Chronicles, you will see that this was millions of pounds of gold, and it was millions of pounds of silver. All of this was dedicated to the building and the upkeep of the temple. Think about this. Anytime you read about Solomon's temple, the beautiful place this must have been with all of this gold, silver, and bronze making it up. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. Here again, we see the Edomites becoming subject to David and bringing this tribute. And Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. Did you notice how the passage begins? After this. David heard Yahweh make this promise, and he acted upon it. You know, we have these nations that, the nation that came before him, Israel, these people who refused to engage the giants in the land because they were afraid, this after having watched God rescue them from the Egyptians, or their descendants who followed them and kind of started to settle in the land, but then became lazy. They started adopting the local customs and even started worshiping the foreign deities. And then they found themselves subject to uh, Yahweh's judgment and it delayed their occupation of the land. Well, unlike all of this, David steps out in faith that he trusts in Yahweh's promise. He goes out and he vanquishes the nations who are living in the land that had been promised to Israel. It is said that this is the only time in Israel's history when Israel came even close to occupying the land that had been promised to them. Now, this chapter says very little about Yahweh. It says lots about David and what David did. But there are two little lines in the passage that tell us that really all of the victory was due to Yahweh. The lines that say, Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. David's success wasn't about David being successful. It was about Yahweh giving him the victory. It was because Yahweh kept his promises that we see that David was successful. 
We see some other promises that are given to the nation, conditional promises, in Deuteronomy 28. In this passage, Yahweh promises to bless Israel when they follow His commandments, that He's going to give them lots of fruit. Now, as we look at this passage in 2 Samuel 8, we see that this is a time when they start to benefit from following Yahweh's commands and seeing the blessing. One of the ways that we see this uh, is one of the territories that they took over was a pathway to Mesopotamia. There were two trade routes, and David was able to take over control of those trade routes as well, which again would have ensured prosperity for the nation of Israel. You know, trusting in David in Yahweh's promises brought more blessing to these people. And it prompted, knowing David was knowing Yahweh was going to keep his promises prompted David to act in a way that was going to help the nation. Now, at the same time we put our house on the market, our next-door neighbor had already listed her house for sale, and the neighbor across the street also had his house up for sale. My parents, too, were moving at the time. Well, we accepted an offer, and these homes were already in escrow. Within about a couple of weeks, we watched all three of these homes fall out of escrow. Silly reasons, but one of the homes fell out of escrow because a neighbor was walking up the walk and overheard a slur. Um, the new buyers were walking up. They heard a racial slur, and they kind of felt threatened by this and decided to back out of their escrow. Another of the buyers decided that they just didn't want the house, so they stopped their escrow. <laughs> Yet another one, the buyer disappeared. They stopped meeting all of the, the escrow deadlines, and eventually it ended up that the seller had to beg to be let out of this contract because they needed to be able to buy their new house and they had to get moving again. You know, as hard as it is to put your house on the market the first time, <laughs> relisting a house is even worse. Just when you got used to and you were done taking phone calls from realtors calling all hours of the day and night, who may or may not show up to drag people through your house, you have your house torn apart, everything in boxes, you have to put it all back in place, and you have to start all over again. You have to cancel your movers, you have to delay the purchase of your new home, and it makes a time that's really stressful even more so. Well, we watched this happen to our neighbors and to our parents just about the time we were accepting an offer on our house, and we kind of wondered if the same thing was going to happen to us. You know, depending on your point of view, you could say, well, it happened to three out of three. Surely it's going to happen to the fourth one as well. If we had done this, we could have accepted the offer and just sat there, not doing any packing or anything until we knew that escrow was going to close, then frantically packed. We could have frantically hired movers and tried to get out of the house in plenty of time. We decided that wasn't the best approach. And we went ahead with our packing, we hired our movers, we continued to purchase the new home as if we fully expected that escrow to close. You know, human contracts that are made by sinful men are subject to fail. Promised by God never will fail. You know, when we go about living our Christian lives, we always need to act as if we expect God's promises to be true. Our first point is we need to act as if we expect escrow to close. If you're a new Christian, or if you're someone who's been a Christian for many years, there are lots of things that you're called to do. But God doesn't call you to do any of them without promising that He's going to help you to do them the way He wants you to do them. 
this should cause you to start packing. Now, maybe you wonder what these promises are. What is it that God calls us to do, and how does He promise to help us? Stephanie mentioned some last week. I have some others that I'm going to bring out for you as well. In Romans 8.29, it says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God promises to make us more like Christ. Our response should be, we need to act more like Christ. We need to act like we know that God's going to make us that way, and that's what we need to do. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about Christ's humility and His service to others, but he tells us in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This promise is made that they are going to be more Christ-like as they serve one another. We see it again in Ephesians 4, verses 9 through 16. God tells us how he's going to provide for us in two ways. First of all, he's going to provide leaders in our church who are going to teach and equip us in such a way that we may attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yahweh promises that He's going to help us to grow by providing leaders for us. Well, He also promises that we're provided, we're the body, we're supposed to grow together, to encourage one another, to grow up, to be more like Christ. Each member of the body has a role for the body. Uh, the body of the church, and in order for it to be healthy, each of us has to become more like Christ. We have to work together. We have to help each other to do this. You know, the first thing that we need to do is we need to attend church. You need to attend church regularly, and not just on the Sunday morning service or Saturday night, if that's where you attend. There are lots of places you can attend. We have, you're all here, you're on the right track. Women's Bible study, maybe it's Thrive, maybe it's Alliance, uh, maybe it's a Compass small group. It's important that you attend these groups every time they meet. Every time you could come, you need to come as well. Write it in your calendar. Maybe write it in pen, and if you're newfangled and you use a device, you can write it in there as well. But when you see that in there, don't schedule something else over it. Go to the church. Well. I was talking about service. How is that service? Well, when you attend church regularly, this service is by encouraging the people who are setting it up. Your women's Bible study leaders, every week, in addition to completing the lesson every single week, your women's Bible study leaders take the time to prepare to lead a discussion. That takes a fair amount of time. On top of that, they pray for you. They contact you. They come here early on Wednesday mornings to make sure their rooms are taken care of, that they're all set up, that they're decorated beautifully. They meet together as a group, again, to pray for you, to pray for this morning. Well, all of that's going to happen if you're here or not, but it's so much more encouraging for them to come and to see that you're coming and you're learning and growing and that their efforts aren't being done in vain. Everyone from your pastor to the facilities ministry is going to be encouraged when they see you sitting in your seat, learning from the preparation that they've done. 
And of course, when you go, be friendly. Say hi to somebody new. Make them feel welcome. Maybe you remember the first time you came to a new church. How did you feel? How did the people make you feel? We had a fantastic experience one time in a church. We sat down and the people in front of us turned around and they introduced themselves to us and asked us out to lunch. There in the spot, we were complete strangers. It really helped us connect with that church right away and just see what a friendly, warm group they were. Just make a real good effort to reach out to the people who are around you. They're your spiritual family. Spend time with the other church members. Get to know them. Have them in your home. Bring them meals when they're sick. Encourage them if they're down. Rebuke them when they're wrong and help to restore them with love. You know, on top of attending regularly, you need to find a place to serve. There are many places to serve, and a lot of them can be done when you're already here. You know, our women's Bible study can always use people helping out in hospitality and the tech ministry. If you go, when you go to your Sunday services, they need people who are going to help them with parking, with greeting, with holding babies, stuffing bulletins. There are lots of things that you can do. And if you can't help when you're at church, maybe you can help when you're at home by writing cards of encouragement to somebody. Maybe you can do it. We have a ministry here that brings blankets, that makes blankets for people who are sick. There's something you can do at home on your own time. It's not a difficult thing to do, but it's so important. Ephesians 4.16 tells us, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. Many years ago, I was part of a group uh, that was setting up a Mothers of Preschoolers program at our church. There was a young woman who was starting to be a part of this ministry, and we asked her if she would head up our hospitality. She wasn't sure if this was a good place for her, and she had never really served before. But after praying about it, she said, you know, I trust that God can help me to do this, and if you feel like I'm the person for this position, I'll do it. This woman ended up being one of the most, the best hospitality leaders we ever had. Well, you know, on top of that, I ran into her even just a couple of years ago. I hadn't seen her for many years. But as a result of that experience, watching her step out in faith and trusting that God was going to equip her to this position for which she was called, she continued to grow and she continued to step out in faith in these different positions to where this formerly shy woman who had trouble talking to two or three people at any one time was now leading large groups of people, speaking to them and teaching them. It was absolutely amazing what she was able to do by reaching out in faith and by trusting that God was going to equip her to do what she needed to do. He's going to equip you. Well, if you, ask if, going, if you act as if escrow is going to close, there are a number of things that you have to do along the way. One of the most time-consuming things that you have to do is to pack. I don't know about you, but I couldn't bring everything with me. I had a lot of stuff I shouldn't still have. Um, you know, David in the same way had a number of conquered peoples that he had to deal with in kind of different ways. He had to look at different things to do with them. Some of them had weapons and wealth that needed to be disposed of. Some of them needed to be kept under control. Let's take a look at our passage again. And as you do that, I want you to keep in mind that David didn't randomly go out and conquer nations. 
Every single one of the nations that he conquered was a nation that had been promised by Yahweh to the nation of Israel. These were nations who had treated Israel very poorly in the past. These were nations who provided horrible examples of worship. A lot of the cases, uh, these were child, they would uh, sacrifice children in their services. Yahweh was so gracious though and had given them hundreds of years during which they could repent before he started dealing with them now. All right, our passage, 2 Samuel 8.1, David defeats and subdues the Philistines. Now the Philistines had long been enemies of the Israelites. Yahweh had left them in Canaan, he tells us in uh, Joshua 13, verses 2 through 3, and Judges 3, 1 through 3, to test the Israelites. Even in 1 Samuel uh, 4 through 6, we see a ruthless defeat of the Philistines defeating Israel. They stole the ark. Well, David is able to defeat this horrible people group, and they no longer even provided a threat for Israel. In verse 2, we look at the Moabites. Way back when they were wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites hired this guy named Balak to curse Israel. In Deuteronomy 25, as the Israelites started to settle around in the nation of uh, Moab a little bit, we see that the Israelites were so influenced by the people of Moab that they ended up worshiping Baal. They were a continuous source of attack. They were always suppressing the Israelites. Bad people. Now, David handles them in kind of an interesting way. The process that he used, this laying out of lines and two out of every three people is killed, is actually a process that they used in the ancient Near East. They used it for enemies who were particularly atrocious or who they suspected were going to be especially rebellious. Now, one out of three, allowing one out of three of these fighting men to live was pretty generous, but you'll see it was enough to keep them from rebelling again. We will see also that the remaining people who left there became David's servants and brought tribute. We look at Zobah and the Syrians. David went through and he wiped out their, most of the horses and the chariots. He left troops behind there. They would have needed to keep the peace. They would have needed to ensure the bringing of tribute. And of course, David took lots of bronze from them. You know, the fact that David wiped out the chariots is pretty interesting. Chariots were the tanks of the day. They were absolutely superior weaponry. David could have easily taken these and he would have had a vast, devastating army. But instead, he decided to destroy these because he was putting his trust in Yahweh to provide the Israelites with the victory at this point in time. It's pretty beautiful to see his faith that he didn't need to rely on a superior military when he trusted that Yahweh was going to keep his promise. In verse 13, we see David striking down the Edomites. Edom, like the Philistines and like Moab, had been a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites for hundreds of years. They also refused to allow Israel passage through the wilderness. Uh, you'll see that in Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21. We see him throughout the book of Judges, and they fought Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 14. And again, in this region, uh, David left troops in order to collect tribute and to maintain order. Finally, we look at verses 9 through 12, when David has to handle a nation a little bit differently. King Toy sends his son, congratulating David, and really he's asking for an alliance here. He makes peace with David by offering him lots of precious metal. 
The tribute that he brought probably continued as well, but at least David was able to successfully negotiate a peace agreement without any bloodshed in this case. You know, in conquering these lands, David had to handle each of the enemies differently. So, uh, at the end, he usually left enemies behind who would work the land and would then contribute to Israel's prosperity. Some of them needed to be watched so that they wouldn't provide a negative influence on the people around them. As we saw in the past, the Israelites had this horrible history of turning to whatever local deities were around, of adopting the worship practices of the people who were around them. David was trying to provide a foundation where Israelites were worshiping Yahweh the way that they were supposed to. You know, we even see evidence, as Susan and Anne mentioned Israel, you'll see evidence in Israel of altars that are left behind. They look up um, in the archaeological finds, they found altars that even date to the time of Solomon, would have been used as late as Solomon, meaning that these altars were used during the time of David. Even during the time of David, David was unable to successfully eradicate these, uh, these altars. People were using them. They were not being used for worship of Yahweh. David was right to worry about how the nation was going to be worshiping and making sure that they were worshiping appropriately. Well, as people of God, we need to look at the things in our, and the people in our lives that are going to cause us to sin and that are going to cause us to stumble. This brings us to our second point. Our second point is that you need to get rid of all of your junk. So as I mentioned, when I was packing, I came across a bunch of things that made no sense to bring to my new house. I had clothing that I no longer wore. We had toys the boys no longer played with. Uh, we had bulbs to lamps that we didn't even own anymore. We had things that had expired, things that were broken. We found old craft projects. I guess I didn't need to bring all of my kids' old preschool craft projects with us to the new place. A rug shampooer, keys for soon-to-be former neighbors' homes. We even had stuff that we'd brought from a former home, a former move that we'd never even used. Now, the easiest thing for me to do would have been to hire a dumpster and just put everything in the dumpster, get rid of it. But I have a little bit of a problem in getting rid of things that look like they still might be useful. So we had to sort through these things that we weren't going to bring with us and decide how to handle them properly. So of course, things that were damaged or destroyed, if they were expired, we just tossed them. Some of the things we set aside to give to friends, to sell in a garage sale, to give to Goodwill. And then there were items like paint that we'd used in that house that we weren't going to bring with us to our new house. We had uh, tools for cleaning and maintaining our pond, and we left those things behind for the new owners. It just wouldn't have made sense to bring all of those things with us. Not only would we have had to pay to have them moved, they would have taken up precious space, and they certainly would have interfered with our need to get just a nice clean slate in our new home. Well, when we become Christians, we find that there are things that we need to leave behind. We need to dispose of them. We need to destroy them in a lot of cases. Even as you mature and change, you're going to find that there are things in your life that are causing you to sin. You need to evaluate these associations, these habits, and these activities, and you need to see what's causing you to sin and decide how to get rid of it. Some of the things you have to remove completely from your life. Do you have certain friends you hang out with who are causing you to sin? Maybe it's your old college roommate and you find yourself gossiping every time you get together with her. Maybe if you read a particular book or if you watch a, a 
particular type of movie or TV show, you find that it's creating sinful thoughts. We have a friend who was part of a rock and roll band. He was saved out of this, but the life, it was kind of cliche, but it was the old sex, drugs, and rock and roll. When he was saved out of this rock and roll lifestyle, the music and this entire lifestyle had been so intertwined that he found he couldn't even listen to rock and roll music without being dragged back to the thought of all those sinful times in his life. He found he had to completely shun rock and roll music. Sometimes there are things in our lives that we have to completely get rid of. Well, money can be an idol in our lives as well. Unfortunately, we can't get rid of money entirely, but we really can take some time and evaluate the hold that it has in our lives. Do you give regularly to the church? You know, the reason that God told Israel to give the first fruits of their crops to the to Yahweh was because they then needed to trust him to provide the rest of the harvest. How else were they going to eat? When you get your paycheck, do you give as soon as you get that paycheck? We can't cling to that lifestyles sometimes. Is that, is that the sin that's in your life that just you're, you're so attached to the lifestyle that is brought about by your paycheck? We have a friend who basically walked away from a lucrative financial career. He sold his large, large home and started over because he determined that this lifestyle, this career, all that it brought were causing him to sin. They had become idols. They were causing him to compromise his values. He walked away from it all so that he could follow the, the things that he needed to be following. How tightly do you hold on to your money? Maybe your idol's your time. As it is with many, a good indicator of whether or not this is an idol for you, of where your heart is, is how you respond when your time is demanded from you. I confess I find myself struggling when there's somebody who suddenly needs to have my time, when they need help right away, when my son has a school project that he needs help with, or maybe even just when a meeting starts late. I become indignant and I say, I really needed that time so that I could serve. I, I, I needed to serve. I needed to work on my projects so that I'm giving this time to the Lord when in reality I was probably just going to finish reading a book or maybe decorating a room. I know that I need to really prioritize how I use my time so that I'm doing the things for the Lord first. I'm serving first and then I'm able to freely give of my time when I'm serving other believers, when I'm helping those and doing the things that I'm called to do. I really need to set aside the activities that aren't glorifying to God. You know, Pastor Mike talks about the gray areas. I encourage you to go through the gray areas in your life as well. And maybe if you're going to do that by going back through Partners chapter 10, you'll find that there are things that you need to evaluate. And they're not always real obvious, like I, maybe you're a big drinker, maybe you're not. But do you need to evaluate how much even a glass of wine is in your life? Do you need to look at the TV shows you're watching or the books that you're reading or the things that you're doing? Well, as you look through the things in your life that you need to get rid of, maybe there are things that you need to add. Are there things that you're resisting doing? Are you resisting being baptized? Are you resisting going through partners or becoming a part of a small group? Maybe it's bringing a meal to somebody, 
Run those things through your rubric in the gray areas as well. None of those are directly, well, baptism is. The other things are not directly commanded in the word, but they're things that you need to do. They're important things that could bring about growth in your life. Run those through your rubric and partners as well. Make sure you're not simply putting your own interests above those of God. Well, just as David treated different enemies in different ways, depending on the threat that they, they provided to the nation of Israel, and in the same way I had to review my items and see how I was going to discard, discard them differently um, in order to evaluate the temptation that they provided, we find that once we move, we need to do something to keep things contained. You need to set up different types of systems. David did this by setting up a much more efficient system of government than what the nation currently had. Look with me at 2 Samuel 8, verses 15 through 18. It says, so David reigned over Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. He would have been the one responsible for securing the borders and keeping the peace. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, which was a position likened to maybe a secretary of state or a vizier. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, probably the one who would have been responsible for keeping a record of important treaties, uh, royal decisions, and decrees. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. These were mercenaries who would have made up David's personal bodyguard. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, oh, read that part, and David's sons were priests. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that David's sons couldn't have served as official priests. They were not of the Levitical line. But so this position was probably more like a royal advisory type of capacity. Well, along with taking over the land that had been provided for him and the nation, David set up a government. He set up the foundations for this nation to be at rest, and he needed to establish a way to keep order, to accept tribute, to administer justice, and even to lead the nation in worship. When we moved into our new home, we had to rethink how we were going to be doing a lot of things. It was an entirely different space. We needed to, point three, we needed to find the best place for everything. In my old home, most things were put where they were because that's where they fit. I had books in my china cabinet. I had china in the pantry. My favorite roasting pan was shoved over under some stuff in a hall closet. We kept toilet paper in the garage. We didn't even have room for a single extra roll in the bathrooms. Well, when we moved, we had some more space and we were able to organize things a little bit more appropriately. So now I try and keep things a little bit closer at hand, maybe where I'm going to use them. I actually keep my china in the china cabinet now. I also move pictures that we use every week in our Compass small group into the kitchen where they're easily accessible. I'm still trying to convince my boys that they can bring more than one roll of toilet paper up at a time, but they're still getting used to the space. I had to figure out how to clean things differently too. We had different types of appliances and different flooring. We even had stairs. Well, I've learned to keep cleaning supplies in several different areas of the house so I can clean up my messes as soon as I make them. And we have two robots in there to control the ubiquitous dog hair. Now I just need to find a robot that's gonna work on the stairs. That's next. 
It took a little bit of time, but I seem to have found the most efficient places to keep things, and I've worked out a routine for keeping things clean. Having thing, everything in its place really helps me keep my home in order. Well, when we live as Christians, when we're working towards sanctification and keeping sin out of our lives, it helps to set up a system too. Let's face it, if you wait for some spare time to read your Bible, it's probably not going to happen. You know, the magazine that's sitting on your coffee table, the game that's on your phone, or the little one who's crying at your feet will usually be screaming more loudly than your Bible for your attention. It's something you need to put into your schedule to do every day. The same goes for your prayer time. Again, daily, you need to set up a time that you can spend in concentrated prayer. When you're looking at these times, the other thing you need to consider is how alert you are at the time. How able are you even to spend that time? Can you pay attention? Is there going to be something else competing? Are you falling asleep? That would be me at night. Can't stay awake, can't pay attention. Sometimes you have a very inconsistent evening or morning schedule. In our case, evenings and mornings are always crazy. We don't know what they are except for an hour that we've put aside every morning when we wake up to drink our coffee, and it works out to be a perfect time to read our DVR. Try then find that time when you're bright and alert. Also try and find time to complete your Bible study. You know, the Bible study that we have to do here today, you know, when you're doing it on the last day and you go, oh my goodness, it's taking me an hour to get this done, 10 minutes a day, you can not only do the starred questions, but you can probably take the time to do every question in the study. The study, all of the questions, when you do them all, provide such a rich background for getting everything done to understand what's in the Word. It's, it's beautifully written, and it'll help you to understand those starred questions when you get them. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to regret that extra time that you spend in the Word. What else can you do to shore up your Christian home? Get a mentor. Find someone who's a little bit older than you are in the faith. Meet with them on a regular basis. You don't have to meet with them every week, but having someone who can guide you as you grow in your faith, as you try to become more like Christ, can really make a big difference in your life. If you don't know of somebody right now, maybe you can ask around, ask your Bible study leader. They might have a suggestion. Uh, somebody in your group might know of a person who would be a good mentor. If you've not already gone through partners, that would be a good place to start. And if you have, maybe your partner's mentor would be a good person to be an ongoing mentor for you. You need to surround yourself with believers. Your best friends should be believers. These are the people who are going to encourage you, they're going to strengthen you, and they're going to help you to make the right decisions. My little sister is going through, well, she's going through a tough marriage. If she had chosen to surround herself with unbelievers, chances are she would have left that marriage a long time ago. But she's wisely chosen to surround herself with people who are believers, who are going to help her to make the right decision, the godly decision, the one that the Bible's calling her to do. You know, God doesn't promise us that we're going to have a good life here and now. He doesn't promise it's always going to be easy, the things that He calls us to do. If you read your DBR yesterday, you would have noticed in Ezekiel that Ezekiel was being called to eat bread that had been baked on human dung. God eventually relented and said, well, you know, you can use a cow patty instead, but I'm not sure that's much better. Fortunately, we as believers today aren't called to do such things, 
But there are a lot of hard things that we're called to do. If you have not surrounded yourself with Christian people, you might not be making the right decisions, and you're not going to have the people who are going to encourage you day to day to make the right decision every time. Find yourself an accountability partner. An accountability partner is a great person who can help keep you on track in your Christian life. Find someone who's already consistent or maybe somebody who just really wants to become more consistent. You can challenge each other to complete your lessons every day, maybe to memorize scripture, to have a daily prayer time, or even a witness to a neighbor. An example of what, can be, what you can do when you have a good accountability partner. I have an accountability partner, and over time, we have memorized chapters of the Bible together, and we even went through... I should have looked up how many pages, but Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. We read this chapter by chapter, chapter a week, and it took us five years to complete this big old book, but it was so worth it. Now we have that behind us. An accountability partner is a great person to have in your life. You know, moving is definitely a difficult process, but now that we're on the other side, I'm really glad that we did it. I'm also glad that I started packing right away, that I got rid of those things I didn't need to bring with me, and that I've set these systems into place so that I can keep our new home in some kind of semblance of order. As you go through your Christian life, I encourage you to act as if you expect escrow to close by believing in the promises that God has given to you as a believer that you'll get rid of the junk in your life by disposing of those things that are causing you to sin, and that you'll find the best places for your stuff by setting up systems that are going to help you to grow. Please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for the promises that you've given us, that you will strengthen us, that you will help us to do the things that you want us to do. Especially, you've given us promises to help us when we do them ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take advantage of the things that you've given us, the promises that you've made, so that we can become more like you. I pray that you'd be with these ladies now as they go to their groups, provide them with fruitful discussion, and I pray that you would just most of all help them to grow to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You're dismissed to your groups. <laughs>